Welcome to Pazina Perspectives, brought to you by Pazina Investment Management, a global value manager known for our commitment to fundamental research and disciplined value investing. Today's episode features our co-chief investment officer, John Getz, discussing recent geopolitical events and the value cycle. So uh, we're living in some interesting times, aren't we? Uh, Indeed. You could say it's interesting. I would say scary at times. (laughs) Um, You know, I think that that today there's so much going on around the world. Uh, I think it is an interesting time to be uh, in the equity markets and, and trying to find opportunities. Uh, if you think about uh, issues that we have today, as I just run them down just quickly in my mind, we have a geopolitical uh, issue, Russia invading Ukraine. We have fears of rising interest rates. We have fears of economic slowdown. We have you know, bottlenecks uh, even coming out of China uh, in the supply chain. So certainly there's a lot to be afraid of uh, I will just emphasize that that fear and uncertainty is our friend in the value space because we're looking to buy things that are undervalued. Uh, it's the whole purpose of having a screening tool that, that forces us to look at valuations that are attractive. Uh, that screening tool focuses us on the cheapest quintile, no matter where we're, we're uh, looking around the world. That cheapest quintile always has problems and uncertainty in it. And if you look back over time, some of our best investments have come uh, and we built, we built the portfolios in times where the uncertainty is at a peak. Hmm. So when you have significant geopolitical events like we're experiencing now, how do you take those into account? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, certainly we would not say we know the outcome of the war in the Ukraine uh, any better than anyone else. What we would do instead of saying we know that Putin's going to pull back in a month or, or try to guess what the impacts are in Ukraine, we would look at the business specifics that arise uh, in the stock market uh, as a consequence. Uh, so a couple of comments there. One is, how do you think about geopolitical events in general? We think of them as opportunities because if you look at historic geopolitical shocks around the world, you'll see that there's an initial period of extreme fear and uncertainty. And usually the equity markets discount that quickly. So what happens, and if you study these going way back to World War I, World War II, what happens is the markets are hit with the uncertainty, but that uncertainty runs its course. And then you get on the other side of that uncertainty and then valuations begin to improve. So we treat geopolitical shocks like we do any other significant interruption, the recent ones being COVID, the financial crisis, et cetera. They take on a similar pattern, which is there's an opportunity when valuations are hit hard, and it's that opportunity uh, that gives us a company-specific opportunity. But let me just, that's a broad comment. Uh, the specifics are we're looking at individual companies and trying to find you know, excellent businesses that are impacted, but not on a permanent basis by a dislocation. Today, coming out of the Ukraine, a lot of that is uh, inflation in supply chain costs and disruptions in supply. So we actually are hurt by volume because the volume is interrupted 
uh, as a consequence of the war. We're seeing that in the automotive supply chain, for example. So we're trying to get to the microeconomics as opposed to the macroeconomics of supply chain problems. I see. So thinking historically, do you feel like the current geopolitical shock has followed history? Yeah, there probably is a is a pattern to these. Mm -hmm. uh, what, I, what I'll say, first of all, is at the front end of this is the fact that there's a huge human cost to all these uh, these difficulties in the world. And war is probably one of the biggest travesties when you think about it uh, that, that the world experiences. Yeah. So, so sadly, the human toll, particularly on Ukrainian citizens, but I'll add on Russian citizens as a consequence of all the embargoes, mm -hmm. it's really a sad, and I think to most of us uh, in the investment community, unnecessary, uh, painful moment in, in history. Um, we, in, in terms of our part, certainly at a personal level, we can do what we can to help those that are less fortunate sure. than us around the world. From an investment stewardship standpoint, our job is to, is to find opportunities where it's created a valuation event. And, and that's what I was saying earlier. When you think about a valuation event, what you're trying to do is not guess whether the pain of war is going to stop quickly or not, mm -hmm. but rather buy a business at a valuation where when you think longer term that, that you're getting you know, a, basically a good deal. Uh, just to put it out there clearly, we are very supportive of sanctions, et cetera, to, to I would say, punish uh, mm -hmm. events that cause a huge human toll. Rather, if there is a company uh, in Europe that is disadvantaged by a supply chain shock, we might want to take advantage of that as as investors. Uh, so just for the record on this on this podcast, we are not making investments in, in, in Russia, and we would certainly mm -hmm. not countermand uh, any of the, the actual sanction regulations that are out there. Absolutely. Just, give, just giving a little more um, specific thought to, to how geopolitical shocks roll through and how this has worked. Uh, we know that Russia uh, rolled into Ukraine in late February. When you think about the uncertainty of that, uncertainty spiked quickly and early. So actually, there was a low in the market on March 8th, that early. Uh, the low was reached, which is mm -hmm. typical of events. Even COVID, uh, in fact, I was just looking at some broader data. If you look at how COVID impacted the world, literally the low was was reached within a month uh, as well. Mm -hmm. So it's it's kind of, uh, you know, the markets hate uncertainty mm -hmm. and they react quickly. Interesting, just to give some context to what's going on in the market today, that isn't the only thing we're worried about, right? We reached a low because of the incursion into the Ukraine in March, but now we're reaching new lows because we have other issues in addition to the invasion in Ukraine. We have inflation that's that's gotten uh, pretty scary, yeah. uh, and as a consequence, response of central bank authorities raising interest rates, mm -hmm. uh, and then we have actual slowdown. Uh, certainly, and I'll just make a geographic comment here. Certainly, the the impact of the Ukraine uh, invasion is much larger in Europe than it is. Uh, in, in, in the United States. So uh, valuations there in Europe, particularly on cyclical businesses, have already been impacted. We're talking about you know, a whole host of, of stocks that are down 20, 30, some of them even 40% uh, be, because of the fears that have 
developed. So, so typically these uncertain events, uh, when we look at them in history, like a, a, a geopolitical event, they roll in quickly into the market psychology of fear. And then they start their long recovery. So the drop is fast. The recovery is typically slower. Uh, we're seeing that again, you know, in, in terms of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, in terms of the impact uh, on, on, on the broader market. Uh, the good news, I would say, is that these periods of uncertainty do set the opportunity for better returns uh, going forward. Now, obviously, uh, as value investors, we're always looking at the undervalued situations, and we need fear and uncertainty uh, in order to get an attractive valuation. I, I always uh, tell people that when you look at the first quintile uh, in our screening tool, there's a problem in every single company at first quintile. Otherwise, why would it be uh, inexpensive? Uh, so there's always a problem. Uh, so we're always looking at what are the underlying drivers of that issue, and should those problems abate or not uh, looking longer term. So in Pazina's recent newsletter, we mentioned a couple of questions that uh, we hear very often. The first being, is value dead? And the second, have I missed the rally? Um, given that value has had a strong rally over the past 18 months, I'm assuming that people don't think value is dead, or they certainly shouldn't, and are really asking if they've missed it. So is the value rally over, John? <laughs> Thank you for that question, Lisa. <laughs> you know, uh, the reason why I'm chuckling is uh, the way we look at it is we're buying individual businesses all over the world, uh, and they don't come with little flags, I'm a value company or, or I'm a growth company. Uh, the reality is we're just looking in a very disciplined way uh, at the cheapest companies, and, and really the cheapest companies vary dramatically over time. Uh, so to say value is dead, which is just, a, you know, buying stocks when they're undervalued. Uh, I don't see how it could ever be dead, frankly, right. uh, in answer to that question. But it changes and the flavor changes. So, so let me just uh, mention that, uh, you know, at this point, I think probably two, three years ago, everyone would have said the energy sector is dead. Why is anyone investing in the energy sector? Mm -hmm. and, and as you see recently, that's been a, a, a nice source of our outperformance. Uh, in fact, it was the only sector, if you looked at it globally, the only sector that was positive mm -hmm. uh, in the first, qu first quarter after the invasion of Ukraine. So uh, when you think about is value investing dead, you should ask yourself, you know, are businesses dead? And, and I think the answer to that is, you know, probably not. Uh, and it just varies a lot over time. I like to point out that at various points in time, uh, the crisis is in different industries and in different companies. Who would have ever thought that we would have bought Microsoft at one point, which we did, or Google, or or recent, or recently, more recently here in our portfolio, uh, GE. I mean, for for decades, GE was was a loved company that couldn't possibly meet our valuation screen. So yes, uh, value is is not dead, but the opportunity shifts. Uh, so I think it might be worthwhile just to mention that shift uh, right now because certainly the incursion into the Ukraine. Uh, was a stimulant to energy markets and the oil price. So certainly that gives us an opportunity to monetize some of the oil uh, investments and then look where things are more impacted. I, I've mentioned supply chain a couple times already. Uh, clearly one of the supply chains that is most impacted is in automotive. I don't know if people, most people wouldn't know, but Ukraine is one of the largest sourcing points for wiring harnesses for automobiles. 
uh, and and you know when the plant when those plants shut down because they're under missile attack, uh, well you know that supply is interrupted. So you could think of your long wait time uh, for buying your car here in the United States as partly impacted by the war in the Ukraine. Mm -hmm. uh, but when we stand back and look at these issues of sourcing, we ask ourselves, well, what should that sourcing look like longer term? And and as you might suspect, supply chains can be moved. Mm -hmm. They might take two or three months to move, but those supply chains can be moved, and that's what happens. So if you think about the recession fear in Europe, it has two elements to it. One is just sentiment. Oh my gosh, there's war in Ukraine. We have inflation. I'm fearful. Therefore, I'm going to buy less. That could create a, just the psychology of it creates a recession, right. uh, which is what most people are planning on. But there's another way uh, recession forces are in play right now in Europe, which is that supply chains are so bad, right? Partly because of China, but mm -hmm. partly because of the war in Ukraine, that the units we're producing, you actually have to shut down the auto factory because you don't have enough wiring harnesses. Mm -hmm. So, so clearly that's a recessionary force, particularly yeah. in Germany. Uh, so when you think about the impact of war and, and, and these other uh, issues, including residual COVID in, in, in China, we are slowing down economies with, with these forces. Again, as we look at the auto uh, sector, our job is to say, well, what should that look like longer term? Can we take care of the supply disruption in the longer term and get good valuation by, by buying uh, the companies that we have in our portfolio? So, John, how how do you, as a value investor, measure the opportunities that's available when you're looking at these various sectors or looking at these industries or companies? How do you know what's what's good? I mean, when you think about people's uh, concerns, is the valuation opportunity dead? That's where I would rephrase it. Okay. You know, not as a style, but just you know, is there a disparity? Uh, value valuation opportunity would be dead. If the gap between the cheapest companies and the most expensive was zero, okay. conceptually, then there would be no value opportunity. Interestingly, uh, and this has been really a long-running phenomenon, by that I mean multi-decade as interest rates have declined, the spread between the cheapest valuations and the most expensive valuations kept widening. Mm. In fact, you know, if you looked at a long-term trend, I'd say is, is a 10 to 20-year trend of those those spreads widening. Mm -hmm. uh, and that really ran all the way up until last year. And that's why you said, you know, the, the reality reality now is it seems to have turned and, mm -hmm. and value is outperforming as a style. Well, the reality is that means the spreads are coming together, the, right? Mm -hmm. The relative cheap companies like energy two years ago, those valuations have moved up. So va uh, the valuations in energy aren't as as attractive as they were two years ago. The reality in the market, though, is that the spread between the unloved and the loved is still quite wide. Now, the last two months have been one of the most dramatic spread uh, contracting periods that we've seen in history. But to answer your question, Lisa, they're not completely undone. Mm -hmm. And the way we measure that is what are you paying for earnings and cash flow in the cheapest quintile versus the most expensive uh, quintile? What I would say is that gap has shrunk. With, with the demise of the of the valuations in the most loved sectors, but it has not shrunk back to a normal situation yet. What's happened instead is new opportunities have appeared in the cheapest quintile. They're different types of opportunities than they were, say, two years ago when energy and financials dominated 
the cheapest quintile. So what sectors are you seeing the most opportunity in right now? Uh, I wouldn't, yeah, using the word most, I would say, you know, clearly because of the recession fears that have cropped up over the last uh, couple of months, that there are some historic cyclical, what we call cyclical sectors that are still attractive. So uh, actually, if you look at Europe in particular, uh, financials were on a, on a bit of a tear, right, as we thought interest rates were coming back and net interest margins uh, were widening. So people were finally, you know, uh, looking at, at there being hope in, in the financial sector in Europe. But really, recession is always a fear. Credit cycles are fear for financials. So they've actually become a little bit more attractive again. So, so I would say, yeah, there's still uh, attractive opportunity in classic cyclicals, auto, some consumer discretionary, and and uh, financials. But what what was appearing as energy left the first quintile, if you want to think of it that way, as energy left the cheapest stocks, the opportunities spread out into some things that may be a little bit counterintuitive, uh, a little bit more anecdotal, but things uh, such as healthcare, uh, and 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 we actually ended up buying. Uh, a stock in the consumer staples, which generally you think of consumer staples as not a uh, classic area. And then last but not least, uh, certainly when you stand back and look at the United States, uh, now there are more tech-related companies getting to cheaper valuations than there were. Certainly we hadn't seen any uh, tech opportunities in our research pipeline uh, as they were mostly overvalued. Uh, for for the last ten years, so I, as I said, you know the first quintile is always changing. That's what's so powerful about the tool is it tells us what to look at, just purely based upon valuation. Mm -hmm. So as you're seeing the the spreads in valuation narrow, how much time do we have left in this value cycle? Do you estimate? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think. Again, there's always a spread between the cheapest and most expensive. It's never gone to zero, Lisa. So, so the good news is, I would say we're always going to have uh, stocks that are cheaper than other stocks. What form that takes is fascinating. When I look back over our 26 year uh, lifetime, at times, you know, it was it was t you know very tech oriented, and there are times when it was very financial oriented. Times where it was very raw material oriented. Uh, you know, there are there are times uh, that different industries and different types of companies get cheap. Uh, I will throw one thing in there. At any given time, it isn't just about sectors or industries because it's amazing, but problems can be very company specific as well. And so even in an environment where let's say that that someone told you that that the valuations for energy are exactly average, the valuations for banks are exactly average, the valuations for consumer uh, cyclicals is exactly average. There would still be a company in there that messed up mm -hmm. or has a, a temporary uh, issue. You know, one of the things, I'll just give you a little anecdote on that. One of the things when GE had its big collapse in share price, uh, if you were talking to someone who's competing with their combined cycle gas turbine business, uh, there's only three players, Siemens, GE, and Mitsubishi Heavy uh, in Japan. If you ask them, well, how, are bad, how bad are things in the business? They would say, well, they're not that bad. Meanwhile, GE was like, totally uh, showing negative cash flow in, in that business unit. So, so clearly we are on the hunt, whether it's a general economy problem, is it uh, an industry problem, but, but most interestingly, the company specific issues that, that might impair a company's outlook uh, in the short term. Those are, those are really interesting opportunities for us. And that's why I mentioned consumer staples, because when you think about consumer staples, sometimes some companies are doing much better than others. Uh, and that's the opportunity of, of, of the day. 
uh, we we've added you know to our global portfolios added one very large pharmaceutical company just happens to be in Japan mm -hmm. because of their own their own path through through their difficulties. So, John, how does this value cycle compare to past value cycles? I would say that you know the, there is a pattern that sets in you know, in value cycles. Typically, the the fear and the uncertainty sets in quickly. So there's a there's a big drop. And if you think about what was it in this cycle, you would say it's probably COVID, right? Mm -hmm. In early 2020, uh, and then the recovery started uh, in late 2020, and that's when value started to out outperform. Uh, so I would say this covers a typical pattern, which is typically you have a big shock and then the recovery starts. Businesses take a while to recover. Like I said, even self-inflicted wounds mm -hmm. uh, can take a long time to work through a company, as in the case of GE. But it's also true that the economies take quite a bit of time uh, to, to recover. So typically value cycles are five years uh, or more on average. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's because that recovery process takes a while to get traction and then work its way into the minds of the investment uh, community. Uh, sometimes those cycles are interrupted. And, and what would interrupt them? Well, another shock. Mm -hmm. So what we have this time is a COVID shock that began the recovery. And it was, I would say things are going you know, quite well in, in that recovery. And then we have the incursion into the Ukraine by Russia, which is another shock, a geopolitical shock. So these cycles can interconnect. There's always a catalyst for the pain, uh, and then there's a recovery period following that. What I alluded to earlier in my comments, particularly in Europe, is now we have an interesting situation. You have a, a COVID shock in the economies in the Western world and China, we're trying to get traction. China had a COVID redux mm -hmm. with some shutdowns earlier this year. So you could say, oh my gosh, we have the, the problems associated with COVID uh, in China. We have the incursion in, in Europe and we have the fear of rising interest rates in the United States. So we have a lot of pain coming together. That's why I think the opportunities over the next uh, coming months in, in devalue are interesting because you have a lot of different uh, forces of pain that are coming together. Typically, the average of that run will be five years okay. uh, coming out the other side uh, of, of the painful uh, environment. We would measure that more just by how are the valuations, where are the valuations. That's why spreads become important. It's more important to say, okay, do you have a gap between the cheapest and most expensive, and, and how big is that gap? Uh, as I said, you know, that, that gap has shrunk a little bit as the, as the market for growth stocks is really almost collapsed, you mm -hmm. could say, uh, you know, over the last couple of months. Uh, but that spread is still wider than normal, not smaller than normal. Mm -hmm. I know you mentioned five years. Five years, that's a long time. Why do you think that the value cycles last so long? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think, I think that uh, there's two aspects to it. One is the actual economic force of earnings recovery. Okay. Uh, you know, uh, as I alluded to GE earlier, while the problems they created took a number of years to develop, there were a number of years in the making uh, in terms of their, their problems, it takes a number of years to work out of it. So, so part of that is just the earnings effect working out of it. Okay. Uh, so financials, I think, are, are interesting in the sense that net interest margins were very low because of fiscal policy, uh, monetary policy, I should say, you know, over the last uh, 10 years, right, because of the the GFC, 
the financial crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, it takes a long time for us to get out of that monetary policy. So there is an economic reason it takes a long period of time. But there's another reason it takes a long period of time, and that is acceptance mm -hmm. of the change in the earnings power. The sentiment around companies is often bruised and takes a long time to heal. Uh, and, and that, we could say, takes the form of stock price multiples. So if you looked at the, the businesses that were hurt for COVID, their earnings recovery has been better than we expected. So you could say, well, hold it. That means COVID is over uh, and there's no more value opportunity. But what's actually happened in some of those companies is their earnings are recovering, but the multiples aren't recovering. In fact, in some cases, the multiples are actually going down uh, that we're paying. Uh, that, that takes a long time for people to accept, say, for example, oh, I am happy to be invested in the energy sector. I was just reading another report this morning where people were saying, oh, the acceptance of energy and the need for growth in, in energy is now becoming more widespread. Well, that's just because if you hated energy uh, a year ago, you're just not going to fall in love with it uh, quickly. And it takes a while for the market to accept the realities of the earnings and the cash flow of businesses as they heal uh, from their pain point. Makes sense. One of the things about these uh, relatively slow value cycle recoveries, if you look at it at the individual company level, it takes a while for people to accept that there's hope. I like to say that the, the cheapest quintile is, is in a way the hopeless situations in the market, whereas there's lots of hope uh, in the more expensive, uh, expensive companies. So how does hope recover is probably one of the ways to to think about it. And the good news is that when you have a very damaging event, whether it's an economic geopolitical shock or a company specific shock, that belief, you've been very disappointed. You're not likely to change your viewpoint very quickly. I'm just talking about anyone's viewpoint of a big disappointment. And as a consequence of that, that gives us the time to research the drivers to the pain. The way I like to say it now is there's only two types of companies in the world those that have a problem today and those that will have a problem tomorrow. Uh, so we're looking at the companies that have a problem today. The truth is those problems are scary. Uh, and that's why the stock typically has fallen maybe 50% or more. When you're looking at a problem like that, there's no way that problem can be resolved in the next couple of days or the next couple of months because if it was, everyone would know that. So these problems take a lot of time for us to figure out what should the longer term earnings uh, look like and to understand the true drivers of, of that pain. Uh, and the good news is if value cycles were six months, we would barely be done with our research to, to, to capture it. So the truth that there are five years and it takes that long for share prices to recover uh, once they've been severely damaged, that's actually good news for us. Our research process begins with our screening tool. That screening tool says these are the cheapest businesses around the world today. Take a look at them. Uh, we initially just try to identify what are the key drivers of that pain and that, that stock price fall so that then we can research those and separate the permanent problems from the temporary. It's all about uh, separating permanent from temporary. So our view on energy, just as an example, our viewpoint was uh, the supply contraction in energy was just so big when oil prices crashed, that even though long, long-term demand for, for oil and gas might decline, 
it wasn't going to decline fast enough to meet the supply decline. And the supply decline was what we're now witnessing uh, today. It was enhanced by Russia, but there was already a decline in supply that was creating the oil price event that we're now uh, living through. Uh, so these things just take a long time to work their way through the system, uh, and that gives us time to do the research, and to the extent we can, uh, prove to ourselves that the problems are temporary rather than permanent. Uh, I will add one note there, Lisa, that, that we don't uh, really know the future. We do a ton of research. It takes us typically around three months to resolve uh, these thorny issues in our own mind. But what we typically find is that the best investment opportunities are where the, the fear uh, case, the, the downside case, is reflected fully in the valuations. So what we're hoping for, we, we get almost for free, meaning mm -hmm. when the businesses start recovering, that that's all upside. So when you think about our portfolios around the world, it's the skew of the outcomes that really creates our long-term alpha. Things just turning out better than people were fearing you know, at the darkest moment. Uh, and, and I'm pretty confident, Lisa, that, that there'll always be fear in the world. Right now, we got a ton of it yeah. uh, from a lot of different uh, aspects, but there will always be some fear uh, that we'll be able to take advantage of by, by looking at the cheapest stocks. Well, and I like what you said about the recovery of hope. I think that's a very positive way to think about in rather than thinking about the fear, but thinking about the recovery of hope. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. What, what is the old phrase? People always say there's only fear and greed. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't like the word greed. I mean, certainly yeah. we like buying uh, undervalued situations. I like to think of it as hope. Exactly. <laughs> not, not greed. <laughs> exactly. Well, John, this has been very informative. I know I've learned a lot. I'm sure that our listeners will as well. Um, do you have any final thoughts you want to share? Yeah, I think, I think, uh, uh, I would just say, you know, we've been been around for a while, uh, and 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 the team is very, I would say, pretty pumped uh, mm -hmm. in terms of the the opportunities uh, that we're seeing in the in this particular fear cycle. Again, uh, the sadness we feel is the same sadness everyone feels, which is the human loss and and, and the tragedy of of life lost uh, in, in the Ukraine. On the other hand, our job is to help our clients find the best opportunities at any given moment, and, and we're excited to do that. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Pazina Perspectives. If you'd like to hear more, be sure to subscribe to this podcast. And for more insights on value investing, visit our website at www.pazina.com. That's www.pzena.com. You can also follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter.